Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So, we were going to do, you know, maybe some other parts of the world, but Alex said, you know, I, I feel we haven't done enough political economy and particularly ancient political economy. You know, we have all these discussions on this show about what was the modern world like versus what was the ancient world like and can you draw a line between the two and how sharp should you draw that line? Is it a line you draw in pencil? Is it a line you draw in ink? Are there stages? A lot of theorists have these theories of history that involve change over time and stages. And we thought, you know, it might be good to just do a week where we talk about political economy in the ancient world, specifically in the Roman Empire, on its own, just how did it work? Because a lot of political theorists make big assumptions about this period and how they contrast it with modernity. And a lot of these assumptions have a free-floating relationship with the evidence. So, we're going to kind of center this around three different books that come at this from a very different standpoints. So we're going to do a little bit of The Class Struggle in the Ancient Greek World by G.E.M. de Saint-Croix, or Croix, as he liked to call himself. Uh, that's you know, the classic of Marxist historiography. It's a very, very Marxist left-wing reading of antiquity published in the early 80s. Uh, and and Saint-Croix liked to call himself Croix because that's what workers called him because they didn't know how to pronounce his name. And he adopted that moniker as, as what he called himself. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course, we're going to balance it, because we like balance on this show, with The Roman Market Economy by Peter Temin. Temin is an economist, and that book is probably the most lib reading of Roman political economy that I can think of. So we're going to balance it with that. And then we're also going to do Escape from Rome by Walter Schiedel. And that, that book kind of zooms out and takes a kind of bigger picture look at you know where does the Roman economy fit into the history of economic development. Uh, and that, that book is, of course, yeah. another interesting book that came out relatively recently. So we're going to start with the Croics. So way back in the 80s, Croics published this text. And it kind of lays out the standard vision of ancient political economy that most Marxists, Hegelians, uh, even to this day, they tend to kind of follow the image that we get in Kreuz. In this vision, the Roman economy was a slave economy. Not in the sense that all of the workers were slaves, but in the sense that the slaves created the surplus that sustained the urban population. In between the property-owning class and the class of slaves, serfs, and tenant farmers, Kreuz envisioned a subsistence economy with most Romans belonging neither to the exploiter class nor to the exploited class. These people, most of whom were peasants and craftsmen and lived in rural areas, were exploited collectively. They were mined for taxes, but they were not exploited individually. They're not framed in this work as beneficiaries of the Roman project. They're not getting anything out of it. Uh, they're also not slaves or tenant farmers or serfs. They're just people who get taxed. And their main encounter with the Roman world 
is the tax collector who comes out and takes their stuff. Now, there are wage earners in this picture, but for Crikes, the wage earning class consists mainly of soldiers. Beyond its very large army, the Roman Empire possessed only a modest civil bureaucracy. And this is something just about everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees that the Roman civil bureaucracy was not very large. Certainly, it was much smaller than uh, you know, the you know, late Chinese imperial bureaucracy of, of you know, the Ming. Much, much smaller bureaucracy. So because it's, it's not a very large bureaucracy, for the most part, the wage earning jobs, the public sector jobs are military jobs. So these wage earners subsist off tax revenue. The army is supported by tax revenue. And so the army needs wealth sucked out of the rural periphery. And so Kreuks frames the Roman army as this uh, kind of middle class entity that sucks money off of the rural areas in a kind of core periphery dynamic where there is a rural periphery, an urban core, and an army that works for the urban core, keeps the uh, rural areas in line, and very much you know, constantly requires tax revenue from the rural areas. So. Because the army is constantly sucking tax revenue from the rural areas, the peasants are happy enough to see the empire destroyed by the barbarians. The arrival of the barbarian kings relieves them of the burden of having to provide the expansive surplus necessary to sustain the cities, the army, and the aristocracy. So in this vision for someone in the rural areas, the collapse of the empire just relieves a burden because these are people who don't benefit from the imperial project and who are constantly having to provide resources so that it can be sustained. It's a very attractive narrative for Marxists and Hegelians, in part because you can fit it into a progressive theory of history in which antiquity is irredeemably backward compared with the Middle Ages, even, you know, let alone modernity. Kreuks often suggests Roman technology was primitive compared with the technology of the Middle Ages. He depicts the regions of the empire as largely isolated economically from one another, with rural areas feeding nearby cities and trade really only occurring at the margins. There's a constant emphasis that you know, there weren't that many merchants and they didn't get that rich. Uh, there weren't that many. You know, one, one, one or two here or there made some money, but for the most part, you couldn't get money from being a merchant and you couldn't get political influence from being a merchant. There's a constant uh, pushing down of the role of the merchants here so that you can tell a story about a Roman economy that is very, very different from the modern economy. Now, one of the things I love about this book is how much Kreuks really cares about the condition of Roman workers, Roman slaves, Roman serfs. Uh, Details of this picture have been challenged more and more in the last 40 years, but normatively, the, the impulse that he comes at this with, I, I just think is a very, very admirable impulse and not one that we often see from historians. More recently, the argument has tended to be that there was more mar market-driven stuff going on in Rome than was previously acknowledged. Uh, so, the most extreme instance of this, for contrast, I think is Peter Temin. Peter Temin uses data on wheat prices to argue that the Roman economy was much more integrated 
than people supposed in the 80s. The price of wheat in the Roman Empire appears heavily influenced by proximity to the city of Rome. Rome's sheer size makes it the place where wheat has the highest value. In locations outside of Rome, the price is lower because a merchant purchasing wheat far away from Rome would need to transport that wheat to Rome for it to be as valuable as wheat in Rome. When a merchant buys wheat far away from Rome, this transport cost has not yet been paid, and this allows the merchant to purchase the wheat at a discount relative to the price in Rome itself. To encourage merchants to bring wheat to Rome, Rome subsidized the transporting of wheat through the Anani system. The government provided subsidized grain to poor citizens in Rome. It then gave the merchants who transported this grain special privileges. Citizens who transported grain for the Anani were exempt from laws mandating that they have children. Female merchants could make a will without the participation of a man. Non-citizen merchants could gain citizenship by running the route. The merchants were also exempt from providing compulsory services of various kinds that would otherwise have been required in their local areas. Now, how much grain did the Anana provide to Rome? Well, the estimates vary heavily. We have at the low end 15%. We have at the high end 50%. Temin likes to suggest that it wasn't really that high a percentage. Temin wants to suggest that there was so much merchant activity going on in the Mediterranean, that in point of fact, the government subsidy didn't have to cover very much of it. What Temin really wants to emphasize is that these subsidies supported a lot of merchant activity in the wider Mediterranean, and they gave the state a strong incentive to keep the shipping lanes clear, policing against piracy. If you've got a million or two million people in Rome, and you've got to feed them all, and you can't grow all the food in the countryside immediately surrounding Rome, you're going to have to transport a lot of grain to Rome. The easiest way to transport grain in the Roman Empire is by boat. It's much easier to do than to transport it over land in a cart. So you're going to need nice, clean shipping lanes, which means you're going to work really hard to keep piracy down. And when you do that, that's going to allow a lot more boat traffic all over the place. So the idea is that the need to feed Rome sparked a series of events and a series of policies which promoted more and more and more trade in a more and more secure Mediterranean lake. The state made traveling in the Mediterranean relatively safe and easy, and that allows for also a greater level of labor mobility than people tend to suggest in the 80s. If it's very easy to move wheat all over the Mediterranean, why wouldn't it be easy for a worker to move to a different part of the empire for work. If you can put grain on a boat, why can't you put a worker on a boat? So if it's possible for the workers to move around, then you're going to see some changes in the way the labor market works. What you're going to notice is that workers are paid comparable wages regardless of which part of the empire they're in because it's relatively easy for people to move from a place that's not paying well to a place that's paying better. And uh, one study by a guy, Kvigny, uh, found that miners in Egypt and Dacia, Dacia is in Romania, were paid comparable wages, even though Egypt was a heavily urbanized province and Dacia was not. Now, that may suggest that the miners could and would move around the empire if they were not offered a competitive wage, leading to wage increases in the periphery, which would boost living standards in the rural areas. 
And that means that there would be a discrete economic benefit that people in the rural areas would gain out of the sheer amount of movement that the Pax Romana would facilitate in the Mediterranean. Now, that's a very different image. Very different image. But let's, let's get back into this slavery question, because, of course, slaves are not mobile. Slaves have a particular master. They can't just go wherever it is that you know, the wage is higher. Uh, that's kind of the whole thing that's distinctive about slavery as a practice. It's very immobile, very inflexible labor compared with the wage market. So if the Roman economy is so modern, what is going on with the slaves? So what do we know about that? Well, it's currently estimated that about a fifth of the population of Roman Italy was enslaved with smaller percentages in the provinces, perhaps around one-tenth, one in ten, and that over the life of the empire, Italy became more like the provinces. Uh, the concentration of slaves in Italy dissipated over time, and that gradually Roman Italy would move to something similar to one in ten. But that at the beginning of the Roman Empire, at the end of the Republic, at the start of the empire, you would have maybe one in five uh, with, with a lighter concentration outside of Italy. Now, Temin argues that Roman slavery relied more heavily upon positive incentives than modern transatlantic slavery. He says it was a more open model in the sense that Roman freedmen enjoyed greater levels of social mobility and could assimilate into the citizen population while freed American slaves continued to face substantial discrimination on the basis of skin color. Even freedmen in democratic Athens could not become full citizens, and Temin argues that Roman slavery was in many cases more like indentured servitude than modern slavery. And he tries to compare it favorably to every other kind of slavery really that's existed. He gives lots of different examples of kinds of slavery, which in his view are less open and less progressive than Roman slavery, if such a word can be used to discuss such a subject. Now, Scheidel suggests that about 10% of all Roman slaves were freed every five years or so. Conversely, in the antebellum South, Temin offers estimates of about somewhere between 1% every five years or even just maybe 0.2%. So one or two orders of magnitude uh, lower rate of slaves being manumitted in the American South versus in, in Rome. It's difficult, however, to be sure to what degree it was really the case that Roman slaves could realistically expect to be freed and to what degree this narrative served merely to incentivize them to be productive. Evidence about Roman economic conditions is always in short supply, and this pushes scholars to conjecture based on small amounts of data and the accounts of primary sources. So to give you an example, Temin found an Egyptian census listed no male household slaves over the age of 32. It went through all the slaves and what ages they were, and none of the slaves were older than 32. Now, since these were household slaves rather than rural slaves, Temin conjectures that it cannot be due to a high rate of mortality. It can't be that all these household slaves are dying before they turn 32 because they're household slaves. They're not field slaves. So he says it must be because all... All or nearly all slaves were freed by the early 30s. He then points to numerous mentions of a norm of freeing 
female slaves after they produce three children. And to the fact that many tombstones say the person who died was at some point manumitted. You know, why are there all these tombstones that say people were freed if freeing didn't happen that often? And why is there all this talk about uh, women after they have three children being freed? Roman women would have three children at a relatively early age. And then we don't see any men in this census over the age of 32. So maybe everybody gets freed sooner or later. He then makes the argument that freed slaves tended to be the most productive and the best educated. He provides accounts of Roman slave owners deliberately educating their slaves to make them more valuable. He suggests that Roman freedmen were positively stereotyped as industrious, highly skilled, and financially responsible. This, however, is somewhat in tension with that earlier point about nearly all slaves receiving freedom by their 30s. If manumission was routine, even for ordinary slaves, why would freedmen be positively stereotyped as better than the slaves that hadn't been freed? The idea of, of the freedman as a positive aspirational figure is only consistent with some level of scarcity of being free, uh, being freed. So there's a little bit of a tension, I think, in this account from Temin. Temin wants to say, on the one hand, that all the slaves eventually are freed. And at the same time, he wants to say that being freed was a, a virtue marker or a merit marker. He ultimately argues that because many Roman slaves bought their freedom, those slaves must have been paid wages, and therefore they were not in an altogether different situation from wage workers. If your slave is paid money and can save up the money and then use that to purchase freedom, the fact that the slave has property insofar as the slave can collect money over time, Tamman thinks that that suggests that Roman slaves are, are, you know, barely slaves. They're really just wage workers who are kind of temporarily tethered to one particular person. And then he wants to suggest that this tethering to one particular person actually benefited the slaves because they tended to be educated because their masters would invest in educating them. And because once they were freed, the uh, former master would become a patron and was kind of on the hook to look after their freedmen and help their freedmen integrate into society. And he wants to, you know, he even makes the argument that the freedmen were better off economically than people who had never been slaves in the first place because they got these advantages. So how did this happen? If, if this was the way Roman slavery worked, which is a big if, how did it come about? Well, Temin argues that this form of slavery emerged because the Romans frequently conquered other Mediterranean peoples who looked very similar to them and could not therefore be easily excluded from citizenship when freed. He also argues that many of the Greek slaves were educated, and this encouraged the practice of having educated slaves, and therefore the practice of educating slaves to increase their value. If you capture a lot of educated Greeks, that will over time normalize the idea that slaves can be educated, that they can do more advanced types of work, that they don't all have to be in the field. And at one point, he explicitly compares Roman slaves to American entrepreneurs. He writes that because Roman slaves could not be sure they would be freed, even if they were highly productive, this, quote, made manumission in the Roman Empire a bit like speculating with a new company today. Success is a product of both skill and luck, and the latter can be the more important. Success only comes to those that try, that is, those people who are willing to take such risks today. Manumission represented the same kind of opportunity for Roman slaves. 
He even quotes Saller, who suggests that the large number of tombstones that indicate that the deceased was a freedman show that the freedmen were more likely to be successful enough to have tombstones. <laughs> the free poor wouldn't be able to afford when they died to have a rock with engravings. But these freedmen could afford it. So he goes, ah, ex-slaves were better placed to make a success of themselves in the urban economy because, quote, many of the ex-slaves started with skills in a business. He argues that freedmen indicated themselves as former slaves because they were proud of their status, writing, quote, to identify yourself as a freedman was to show you had been, in modern parlance, a self-made man, not the recipient of inherited wealth. Ancient history doesn't neatly fit our narratives. The Roman economy was likely a good deal more dynamic than modernists writing in the Hegelian or Marxist tradition would like to believe. There was probably a lot more market activity and a lot more mix, mixing together of different kinds of uh, economic behaviors and practices. It probably wasn't some kind of linear passage from a very primitive ancient economy to a more advanced medieval feudal economy to a more advanced modern economy. There probably was a lot more similarity between Rome and, say, uh, Britain or the Netherlands in the 1600s than people have, have commonly admitted. That's probably the case. At the same time, the economists who take Roman imperial ideology overly literally lapse into apologizing for a system which clearly involved an enormous amount of exploitation a very serious exploitation and cruelty and violence. Now, Walter Scheidel, in his book, presents a more mixed view. He argues that the Roman economy delivered unprecedented peace and wealth, but that high levels of economic inequality and lack of meaningful competition from other states disincentivized technological development. The leveling and increased military competition in Europe that prevailed in the millennium and a half after Rome's fall eventually produced industrialization on Scheidel's account. So when you break the Roman Empire up into a bunch of smaller states and you put those states in a competition with each other and none of those states wins and establishes a new empire of the same type scale as the Roman Empire, this continuous competition among these increasingly heavily armed uh, states with more and more advanced weapons, uh, that leads you in this account to industrialization. He suggests that the, the thing that Rome really did for us is that it went away. And by going away, it made space for this competitive situation in Europe that otherwise uh, would not have occurred if it had continued to operate. He suggests that Rome would have been not that different from, say, uh, China, where when Chinese dynasties collapsed, they were invariably replaced by new unitary Chinese dynasties. You did not get very long, lengthy, uh, continuous periods of, of uh, conflict, rivalrous conflict of many small states. There are in China certain periods like that, like the Warring States period or the Three Kingdoms period. But these periods are the exception rather than the norm in Chinese history, whereas this constant anarchic violence and killing is the norm rather than the exception in European history. Uh, I think that that kind of mixed view is pretty plausible, that Rome had markets, but it lacked some of the other prerequisites for industrialization, that markets do not in and of themselves give you all of the prerequisites for industrialization, that having a market economy by itself is not enough to result in something like the industrialization that we saw in 
the 17 and 1800s. So I think it's, it's plausible to say that Rome had a merchant class. It had a bourgeoisie that in many cases adopted positions that are familiarly bourgeois, uh, you know, a focus on you know, pride and meritocratic achievement, approaches to ethics and philosophy that place more emphasis on the individual, you know, Stoicism, Epicureanism, and, and Christianity, uh, all have a certain uh, cachet with merchants and disaffected elites, you know, especially you know, in the case of Christianity, before it was uh, thoroughly integrated into Roman imperial ideology, it had this kind of critical function of positioning the individual against the, the fallen society or the corrupt society. You know, we, we see a lot of that kind of narrative in, in bourgeois morality. You know, I, I think that it would be difficult to argue that that was not present in Rome. But these people were not capable of restraining the central authority's ability to, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate the power of the landed aristocrats. I think they were able to diminish the ability of the state to levy taxes. So one of the points that Temin makes is that oftentimes in Rome, it was easier to print money than it was to raise taxes. Because raising taxes could get you opposition from local elites, but for the most part, people would not no notice a little bit of money printing. And Temin makes the argument that this worked in large part because when the Roman Empire minted a bunch of coins, over time, those coins would be dispersed to the rural areas of the empire through the trade system. So if the trade system is robust enough that you have a substantial amount of stuff moving around all over the Mediterranean, then coins that you mint in Italy will eventually move to the provinces. And so what will happen is that the money supply will over time decrease in Italy. And if you're having economic growth, then you're kind of kind of need more money. So when the Romans would print, uh, would mint a bunch of coins, oftentimes they were correcting a decline in the money supply in Italy that needed to be corrected, uh, both because there was money trickling out and because the economy was growing, albeit not very fast, but it was growing. Uh, and therefore, uh, when these print, when these mintings happened, they had a benign effect. This changes uh, when the Antonine Plague hits in Temin's narrative. When the plague hits, that means that it's no longer the case that the economy is growing. So when money gets minted, that money starts to have an inflationary effect. Uh, and during periods where there isn't economic growth, the inflationary effect makes instability worse and contributes to existing problems. But it, it needs to be emphasized that the evidence that we have about Roman prices does not suggest hyperinflation occurred in Rome. It suggests uh, a period uh, where for, for the uh, in the high period of, of the Roman Empire, there was very low inflation for the first 200 years or so of, of the imperial period uh, you know, before the Antonine Plague very, very limited inflation, uh, even during periods where you have emperors that we think of as irresponsible or nutty, you know, like Nero, uh, very limited inflation overall throughout that period. And then there's some evidence of increased inflation in the centuries following the plague. But this increase in inflation, we're talking about, you know, maybe figures like uh, 6% or 10% or uh, in the teens, we're not talking about enormous uh, amounts of inflation of the kind that would rapidly unravel the society. And it makes sense that we're not talking about that kind of inflation because the Roman Empire did not immediately collapse after the Antonine Plague. In fact, the Roman Empire in the West continues for another 
250 years after the Antonine Plague, uh, and in the East for, for longer still. And there were uh, eventually reforms which uh, stabilized a gold currency, the Solidus. Uh, we've talked a little bit in the past about there being a two-tier currency system that develops in the late Roman Empire, uh, in a period where our data is not very good, to the point where there is debate in Roman historiography about just how rich was that century, uh, the century, uh, you know, talking about the fourth century here, the century of, of the Constantines, the century when the empire is Christianized. How rich was that century? You have historians who argue it's just as rich as the first two centuries. Uh, and you have historians who characterize that century as uh, significantly poorer than the high period centuries. And the fact of the matter is we just have very, very little evidence. We just don't have that much to go on. People are looking for more evidence all the time, but there isn't a ton isn't a ton to work with. From what I've seen, I think the evidence is pointing in the direction that uh, the uh, that the fourth century was relatively affluent and more affluent than people in the past have given it credit for being. But this is something that's subject to change as we, uh, if we learn new stuff, if we can find anything. I mean, so much of the evidence is destroyed or gone or uh, you know, impossible for us to find. So, uh, even though the bourgeoisie were able to, to some degree, I think, limit the degree to which the empire taxed, and they were able to extract, for instance, some very cushy benefits for running that Anana route. Uh, they were never able to displace the landed aristocrats. They were never able to displace the charismatic military commanders who owned the big estates, who played the central political role. And in the centuries following the fall of the empire, the Roman market economy collapsed. As you get a bunch of these smaller states, these different states fight with each other over control of both the land and the sea. So you have competition in the Mediterranean, naval competition, which means you also will have uh, lots and lots and lots of different fleets that are potentially hostile to one another in the Mediterranean, pirate fleets in the Mediterranean, again, with no in position to control the spread of piracy, and all of that is going to grind to a halt all of that trade. And the Mediterranean has never become uh, as politically unified as it was during the Roman period. And this is something on which our sources have, have broad agreement. Uh, there was never that same level of political unification. And so whatever level of trade was developed in the Roman period, it would be very hard to imagine at any stage uh, in uh, the Middle Ages or in the early modern period, there being anything like the same trade volume or the same comfort or ease of trade. Uh, whether that's enough to fully integrate the economy to the degree that Temin suggests or just to have it more integrated than, than Croix's uh, suggested in the 80s, you know, where we sit on that continuum between the Croix account and the Temin account, we still need more evidence to really, to really know. And we may never get that evidence. But it does make sense that if you have political unity around the Mediterranean, that that would make it easier for boats to move. And we don't really have any period like that that we can look at or refer to when we try to make comparisons to other periods of trade in the Mediterranean. We're always talking about situations where there are multiple fleets in the Mediterranean contesting those waters. Uh, but you know, I think you know, ultimately, as that trade went away, this class of merchants that had a role to play in the Roman Empire, albeit not the dominant role, but a role, uh, that class, of course, diminished because without the uh, background for the trade that it needed, that class would not be able to subsist. And that would result in, over time, cultural production being more firmly dominated by warrior landlords and a transformation of 
uh, the kinds of philosophies and ethics and, and systems of morality that people had uh, from this kind of uh, sort of bourgeois individualist stoic epicurean early Christian thing to uh, you know more recognizably medieval landed aristocrat ethics that in many ways are more like uh, ancient Athenian ideas uh, that are more integrated whole holistic conceptions that are focused uh, more around I think part of the reason that medieval and Athenian political thought tends to be more holistic uh, is that landed aristocrats because they own land uh, are tied to specific places so they tend to be focused on place and that is a kind of break on the individualism of the merchant who because they're mobile isn't connected to any particular place so as the trade goes away, the more individualist strands that you get from having all of this mobility, those die away and, and people become more focused on the specificity of places, contexts. Anyway, that's what I've got to start. What have you been thinking about, Alex? What did you get out of all this? If it's, uh, if it's holistic, um, shouldn't it be metropolitan as well? But it's not. It's more closed off. Just, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of, of – it's interesting. Nowadays, we kind of associate the individualist, especially in, you know, say, the United States, with the kind of backwoods person, the person who moves out to the rural area and gets a bunch of land so that they can be hidden away by themselves, right? Uh, whereas in antiquity, I think it tends to kind of go the other way where you have landed aristocrats who, because they all have land that's near by one another, recognize that if the territory that they're all farming gets invaded by somebody, they're all going to be in trouble. So they better club together and they better think about uh, what kind of politics they need to be able to defend the territory. And that produces a more collective uh, mindset uh, and a more holistic mindset than the... Uh, you know, the, the mentality of the merchant, uh, certainly. Is that like in Scheidel when you see uh, a, what was more common in the West versus in East Asia? Say, do you kind of harass and compete with your enemies or do you have to, are you forced to accommodate them and have these ideas of balance and efficiency and not just reckless improvement? Yeah, I think it, it was difficult really to have progress narratives, you know, really big progress narratives in antiquity because of the pace of change. Um, but I, the, the Scheidel point about being constantly in this tug of war with the steppe peoples in China, Scheidel argues that because in China and in Persia, uh, there's this constant menacing threat of the latest steppe invader, uh, that this has an effect of forcing the urbanized population to stick together more, to not infight within itself as much. And while this has certain stabilizing functions in terms of the politics, it also thwarts a lot of the competition internally within the society that might have the kind of economic, uh, dynamic economic effects that you'd be looking for if you're trying to industrialize. So you kind of pay a price. You get this period of peace and stability but it comes at the expense of a lot of the dynamism. The predictability of things that you get with these big empires comes at the cost of that, that dynamism and that adaptability. And 
you can, I think when you're looking at, oh, how do we economically develop, there tends to be a celebration of the dynamic side. But of course, for, for most people, especially in antiquity, if you're not going to live very long, uh, and there isn't really very rapid economic growth in any case, for most people at most times, they take the stability and the peace over the adaptability, which comes at the price of a lot of carnage and instability in life. Uh, I think we, the, the people who tend not to have that attitude are the people who get kind of bored with stability. Uh, people who get kind of bored with uh, knowing exactly what they're, they're meant to be doing all the time and who don't want to just do whatever it is that their parents were doing, want to go off and have adventures. And a lot of those people are, are the kind of merchant figures in these stories. These people who kind of are entrepreneurial and they go off on their own and they get a boat or they get a fleet of boats. There are some of these merchants who get you know, really large numbers of boats and they get you know, agents who captain their boats and they uh, you know, have to trust these agents or they've got to do something to ensure that the agents are, uh, don't cheat them. One of the stories that you get in the Temen book is the tendency to, if you were transporting wheat, you'd have a sealed cask on the ship of the wheat in its original form, its original quality, a cask that is not opened, uh, where if the seal's broken, that means for sure something is, is wrong. So when the wheat arrives at its destination, the person who's buying the wheat can open the sealed cask and check the quality of the wheat in the sealed cask against the wheat in the other casks to make sure that the person captaining the ship didn't cheat them by selling a bunch of the wheat and then replacing it with dirt, <laughs> watering down the wheat with other kinds of, of stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how they you know, came up with ways to prevent this from happening beyond just the, you know, the obvious thing of using people you trust or using friends or using family members. Uh, but it's like you were saying, yeah. it, 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 you need quite primitive technology in order to basically keep the information equal among competing parties. You don't need a lot. Yeah. I, you never get the information equal, but there are things you can do to mitigate you know, what the economists like to call information asymmetry. There are things you can do to reduce the severity of it and its effect, even with relatively primitive technology. We're used to a world where we can deal with all of this with computers and telephones and so on. And uh, it, that's now much harder. Now, if you send a boat out, it's going to be gone for months and you have no way of getting in touch with the guy <laughs> that you've sent off on the boat. And who knows what on earth he'll do. And if, say, uh, you know, he could come back and tell you my boat was lost at sea and uh, Actually, what he might have done, you know, and I was shipwrecked and so on, but actually what he does is he sells all of the wheat somewhere, wrecks the boat, you know, on his own and uh, spends all the money, you know, uh, carousing around and then comes back and goes, ah, you know, the boat sank. Sorry. There's nothing you can do to really prevent that from happening if that is what, in fact, your agent chooses to do. Uh, but it's, it's one of the dangers faced by merchants who have large numbers of boats, so they can't be on all the boats at once. And it's something that puts a little bit of a break on really large merchant operations. Isn't that what happens in a world where it's more, in, in Shidel, it's more competitive polycentrism, so multiple states as opposed to a single kingdom or empire? And then the more interconnected we become, we become less like that and more basically one single empire because you can't hide or you can't, your agents can't hide from the, yeah. 
Fiona. Yeah, you know, there's a, an argument to be made that globalization has made us in some ways more like a trad old fashioned empire insofar as we don't have the same sharpness of competition that we used to have in the world. Uh, we've calmed a lot of the conflicts that we used to have uh, in large part because the sheer amount of danger that those conflicts pose is, is too much. Uh, you know, from nuclear conflict to uh, the enormous numbers of people who are mobilized and who die uh, in, in major wars, uh, all of this has made the dynamic competition that gets celebrated in Scheidel's book very unattractive to people. You know, if what causes economic growth is countries constantly fighting wars with each other for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, we're not going to have growth that's caused by that. And there's a question, I think, about whether just having a market system is enough to really get the kind of growth that Scheidel is talking about in terms of the transformative industrial growth. Uh, you know, that's driven by needing to manufacture more munitions than other countries, needing to manufacture more guns, needing to have a better and higher quality machines uh, so that you can win. Because if you don't win, then your state is destroyed. Uh, in a world where you don't really have that kind of hard evolutionary pressure on your technology, you know, even when you have technological development, a lot of it is likely to be not very serious and not held to a very high standard. It can just kind of be, you know, what seems fun or what seems like it might make a buck. Uh, and that's not you know, the same standard as this has to be good enough to enable me to win a war with some other state. And so I think Scheidel makes a, a really relevant point here about the role conflict and war have played historically in driving technological change. And of course, trade is something that happens when there's breaks in, in that conflict. And trade is often framed as a, as a pro-growth thing. But in Scheidel's story, a long period where there's no conflict will not produce really transformative growth. And so there's some antagonism, I think, between the uh, large-scale paradigm-shifting quality of war and the gradualism that we associate with trade. Uh, and, and the tendency for that to kind of plateau. And for there to be a kind of, uh, and I think to some degree we're, we're in this world where it feels like we've kind of reached the, the boundaries or the limits of what we can do just by trading. And there's a frustration with what trade is delivering for us. And there's a sense that it no longer delivers the kind of growth that it was associated with. The thing is, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there were enormous limits on trade. Uh, because coming out of World War II, you know, there had been enormous disruption in trade, and only very gradually was trade reopened you know, through the series of GATT agreements, uh, and then the, you know, the WTO. Uh, only very gradually was trade reopened. And when, as trade expanded, economic growth in a lot of the rich countries declined uh, in the back half of the 20th century and in the first quarter, we're almost at the quarter mark of the 21st, these increases in trade came alongside reductions in growth rates. As the technological stuff that came out of fighting the world wars, uh, that stuff was picked up and implemented and turned into civil civilian technology and used to develop uh, you know, and raise the civilian standard of living. Uh, but without the, the environment that, that causes you to develop those technologies, you get to a point where you know the stuff that the market's going to make is just not going to 
move the needle all that much. Although we're, you know, we're seeing an interesting challenge to that from you know, the AI guys and the chat GPT stuff, you know, people trying to say, hey, wait, you know, these, these uh, civilian companies that are just operating in this market environment, uh, you know, they can produce transformational technological change. You know, they don't need uh, that kind of competitive polycentric formation that Scheidel talks about. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think to a very large degree, a lot of these tech companies are receiving major, major subsidies and piles of cash from the military industrial complex. Uh, and for a long time, the Cold War inspired a lot of defense spending, which has had a number of technological uh, outputs. The, the thing I really like about Scheidel's Escape from Rome is just how much it kind of throws into relief that it's very difficult to get economic growth without not just competition among businesses, but competition among states. And if you're going to say, well, the Roman Empire was bad for economic growth, this is another way of saying that peace is bad for economic growth, because what the Roman Empire is, is it's a long period of unprecedented peace, where you can do a lot more trade than could have been done in periods of conflict. And that trade, instead of being this wonderful resource for economic growth, uh, if anything, Scheidel frames it as you know, certainly not good enough to produce industrialization. And in some ways, the conditions that brought about that trade were obstacles to growth. The fact that nobody was fighting becomes an obstacle to growth. And Scheidel often likes to, to write these books that have this kind of counterintuitive implication. Yeah, he also wrote uh, The Great Leveler, where he argues that you can't really reduce economic inequality uh, without major conflict, major disturbance, huge, enormously costly stuff that is really hard for people to stomach in practice. Inequality or equality without? Economic inequality. You can't, you can't get rid of it. You can't uh, reduce it for Scheidel without these big cataclysms, a revolution, a major war, a, a very nasty pandemic. It has to be much worse than something like COVID-19, uh, much more disruptive that kills uh, very, very large numbers of people. These kinds of things force major structural changes in the economy uh, as ways of managing these crises. And those major structural changes create opportunities for centralized uh, players to transfer lots of resources very quickly from one part of the economy to another to confront the crisis. And those transfers can have this leveling effect. But when you don't have this big cataclysm, it's very difficult to create the political will to do major transfers through things like you know, ordinary reforms. Is the big, um, is the catastrophe what is, uh, what Temin calls a Malthusian, a Malthus constraint? Well, for Temin, the, the Malthusian issue is that if you have a kind of agrarian society, right, the tendency is if you have a uh, you know, very good economic output, a lot of this tends to go into raising the population because a lot of what you're making is food. So if you have big increases in economic growth, it tends to raise the population count. And then you get to a point where you have more people than you have land that those people can make a living by farming. So then there is this need to export population. So in a lot of narratives of Roman economic history, this idea of a surplus population that needs to find land a farm becomes a major part of the story. Now, the issue with this 
is that, of course, you have periods in Roman history where there isn't a lot of border change. Some people like to frame the Roman Empire as this continuously expanding entity that is constantly making so much food that it produces so many people, then those people need land. So you have to go conquer the land and then give it to those people. So a constant colonization project where if you don't have money, you join the army, the army conquers land. Then when you retire from the army, you get some of the land that you conquered. This is certainly something that was done at certain periods in Roman history. It's, it's certainly the case that people who didn't have land joined the army in the late Republic and often got land in the territory that they conquered. But for the bulk of Roman history, the borders don't change very much. If you look at the Roman Empire in particular, it is not a period of enormous border change. It is, for the most part, a, a very calm period compared with what comes before it and what comes after it. So in that period, you, you aren't going to be constantly capturing new slaves. You aren't going to be constantly adding territory for surplus population. Indeed, the crisis in, in the Roman Empire is, is often framed as the Antonine Plague, a population reduction. So then when the empire needs to find people to deal with uh, you know, military incursions from different groups, it, all of a sudden it has a hard time finding enough people. And it wants to raise wages to make the army more attractive, to collect the people that it can collect. And then it can't raise taxes to pay those wages. So it mints a bunch of money. <laughs> And in that context, that has an inflationary effect, which creates further frustrations and uh, more uh, coups and, and emperors replacing one another with more frequency. So you have inflation and slower growth, loss of productivity, but living standards are still going up because you're kind of buying, you know. Well, not by that point. Okay. By the time we get to the crisis of the third century, most accounts agree that there was a major reduction in the size of the economy. Uh, now, it may well have been the case, however, that while the overall economy decreases, people living in certain regions may have done very well out of it. If you are in an area that's been devastated by the plague, and now there are only a third as many laborers as there used to be, you can certainly negotiate for a better situation from uh, the local elites because your labor is all of a sudden, much, much more valuable. This is part of the uh, enormous power of a really major plague that kills a large number of prime age workers. Really major plagues that do that compel transfers to occur because they create a situation where the balance of power between capital and labor is all of a sudden upended in a flash. Similarly with wars, wars really increase the capacity of the state to take money from rich people. All of a sudden, because of the existential character of the war, the state's able to pile up a huge amount of resources that it previously couldn't get its hands on. And when the war ends, it doesn't have to immediately go back to not leveraging all those resources. It can convert some of those resources into long-term uh, um, programs. So you can go, okay, well, we've been you know, raising enormous amounts of money for the military. Why don't we put some of that money into a national health service? We've already been taking all the money. And at this point, we've taken so much money that the people we've been taking the money from are in a much worse position to resist us, ma making the decision to take more. And we've got a bunch of people who have been in the army, who have military experience, who have been fighting, who are going to be mad if they don't get a reward for all that when they come home. And you don't want to upset those people in that situation. Uh, least of all, you know, because they can cause you a lot of trouble for you if you do upset them.
You know, so in a context like that, things like the world wars, things like the, the Russian revolution, you're know, creating this, this boogeyman state that uh, looms over the uh, Western states, you know, creates this concern that if you don't you know, raise the standard for people, well, something like that might happen. Um, this kind of stuff has an effect. It's very difficult to do emancipatory politics without this backdrop of major cataclysmic violent change. Uh, if you don't have a backdrop of major cataclysmic violent change, it's very difficult to find a record of, of ordinary reforms making very much difference. That's the kind of message of, of The Great Leveler, uh, you know, that Scheidel book. This Scheidel book, I think, makes the interesting point that even if you say, okay, the Romans had a market economy uh, and the Mar Roman economy was more similar to modern economies than is generally acknowledged, uh, that this in no way is enough for transformative economic change. Markets are not that powerful. Markets, you know, sure, they, they smooth things out a bit, but they do not encourage uh, innovation in the way that uh, military competition does. They don't literally put a gun to your head and say, invent something to keep us alive. You know, there's a, an obviousness about military competition. But you know, now we're in a situation where the cost of having cataclysms is just so much higher than it used to be. And uh, the, you, know, you, can, you can never choose these things. Politically, they can never be chosen because they're so horrible The only kind of, of acceptable politics is the politics of trying to avoid them. Now, apart from revolutionary politics, revolutionary politics is probably the, the one instance in which people make positive arguments for cataclysms. Uh, although you could find a, you know, Nietzsche, for instance, making an argument for a, a giant war among all the states where they would all exhaust one another and destroy one another, allowing for Greek city states to reemerge. You, know, you can find that from him. But generally, theorists will, will back away from arguing for the cataclysm because, I mean, for one, once you start the cataclysm, you have no idea where it's going. And this is the whole experience of the French Revolution is, you know, even this, which seems like a planned cataclysm to some degree because you have political actors who are trying to lead it or direct it, you know, it gets out of hand and it develops in directions that none of the people involved were really looking to develop it in. But of course, the French Revolution has all sorts of, uh, you know, is, is both a catastrophe and it's something that has very generative effects. It totally transforms the discussion that goes on in, say, Germany, for instance, and produces a lot of, of uh, you know, economic development in Germany and political reorganization in Germany that has far-reaching consequences, you know, both in terms of making Germany rich and in terms of setting Germany on the path that ultimately led to it becoming the Nazi state. Uh, You know, these cataclysms go places that you just cannot, you can't plan for it. And so that, you know, is it responsible to start one? Because you never know how they're going to end. So it can't possibly be responsible to start one. So the only kind of person who could begin such a thing is a, a demonstrably irresponsible and you know, probably morally contemptuous individual. Uh, you know, that's the only kind of political leader who could really get one of these things going on purpose. And then if you have a political leader who starts one by accident, well, he started it by accident. If you start it by accident, that means you have no control over what's going on and you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so whenever we get the kind of really big dynamism that actually produces the, the major changes in the way societies are structured, it happens in this horribly chaotic, miserable way. And so it can never be endorsed. And yet, you know, can you endorse never having any kind of transformative change ever? <laughs> That's the other choice.
What? Why do? Why do some people look at that trauma and say, "Oh, it's purely military," and then Croaks would say, "No, that's just another military is another word for economic condition." Almost. Why do? Is it just basically whether or not you view the fact you have to pay tithes as something to rebel against, or just something to go with and see as a route to, you know, making more money? <laughs> well, so a lot of the competition that occurs. You know, we can think about competition as, of course, something that can happen among states, but it can also happen internally within a society within the elite, right? You can have different sets of rich people with different interests who uh, are in competition with each other. So this intra-elite competition, which can happen at the level of states or it can happen internally within the society, within the ruling class or ruling classes or affluent or wealthy classes, uh, that kind of competition is often very generative insofar as divisions within the rich produce changes in society uh, that have knock-on effects for poor people. And most of human history is poor people not really able to take any kind of role in what goes on, but being kind of subject to the consequences of this competition that occurs within and among elite classes. You know, there's very few you know, periods apart from you know, really the last couple hundred years where you can say, ah, here's you know, uh, you know, worker politics occurring. Most of the time, it does not occur. So most of the time, the change that happens is change that, change that is driven by particular interactions within the elite, intra-elite conflict, intra-class conflict within the ruling class. Uh, and you know, people will sometimes frame it as two different classes. You can say landed aristocrats versus a bourgeoisie. That's true. But also, it can be landed aristocrats living in one part of France and landed aristocrats living in a different part of France. Uh, it can be landed aristocrats in France and landed aristocrats in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, there are lots of different ways that you can have this competition. But this competition, which is often military and often violent, is just as central in, in economic growth narratives as the kind of competition we associate with trade. And if anything, it might be more essential. And I think that's the really interesting implication of Scheidel's escape from Rome argument. Actually, that the conflict, the violent conflict, is more important for growth than trade, to the point where if you had the benefit of trade indefinitely for thousands of years, you might not grow at all. But if you have conflict among states, enormous amounts of change will happen in the same period. Uh, you know, Scheidel looks at the history of, of the Byzantine Empire and goes, look at this empire. This is an empire where there's really no major innovation at all that occurs no major economic growth. You have a very, very stable system that even after it endures many invasions from many different populations, it's very hard to get rid of it. It's very tanky. It subsists for a very long period of time. And he suggests, you know, this is what would have happened in Western Europe if the Western Roman Empire had stayed together. This economy would have just kept plugging along indefinitely without really delivering major change. And it would have been peaceful and people would have regarded it as, you know, the most wonderful period that ever existed in terms of standard of living, especially for the affluent classes. But uh, you would never get any real dynamism or change. You would always have a society with slaves and serfs and tenant farmers with no real possibility of that structure changing, revolving or developing. And that's why there's this narrative of, of Rome had to go away in Scheidel's story. It had to go away 
so that you could have growth. But when he says it had to go away, what he's saying is we had to have uh, enormous amounts of, of war and death in Europe. Enormous numbers of people had to die instead of getting to enjoy uh, the standard of living that they would have had if the thing had kept going. And this is the, you know, nobody gets to just say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm for competition, you know, peaceful competition. Because what history indicates is that we don't, we don't have this. In, in point of fact, the liberal argument for markets, ultimately, when you really dig into how it works, you always have to draw on something apart from peaceful exchange. You can never just frame the whole system in terms of peaceful exchange. There's always something else that's going on, whether it's the exploitation of the underclass, the, the conflict among the elites that you know, can take uh, a military form. Uh, there's always additional forms of competition that go on apart from peaceful market competition. Well, to, be peace, to be peaceful in the exchange where you're, both partners are coming to it unsatisfied, isn't that the most virtuous end? And then there's always going to be the vice end, which is just by any means. So, And then the, the law is basically just tending towards the more virtuous end. And not, not trying to pretend. And it's, it's, yeah. it's the fundamental hypocrisy of, of all systems. All systems have this kind of chaotic underbelly to them. You know, where the reason that they came into existence is highly contingent stuff. They want to dress up a narrative that they were necessary or natural, or that this is, of course, the way things had to be. But if you look into, you know, how an empire comes about, there's all these contingencies. Uh, you know, there's this part of the Scheidel book where Scheidel really digs into how exactly did Rome actually take over all this stuff. And it's all this contingent stuff, a set of conditions that the Romans had, that nobody else had, that nobody else plausibly could have. And for so much of European history, you have writers, you know, like Machiavelli going, oh, if only we could, you know, copy the Romans. If only we could have the same kind of system that they had. But the contingent situation is never there. The specific situation that the Romans get where they have this population advantage and they don't have any states nearby that are really competing with them. And the states that are competing with them are further away or less efficient agriculturally and so aren't really in a position to stop the growth that uh, Rome you know, gets on. Uh, these are just some very strange features. You never get a, a big Mediterranean spanning empire ever again. Whereas in China or in Persia, you know, it, it is not so hard to set up a really big empire. Uh, it's been done many, many times. The conditions for it are not as rare, as in part because you constantly have this pressure from the steppe population that forces these cities to come together and stop fighting amongst themselves. But it's this, it's this not fighting amongst yourself that ultimately causes you to not develop. It's the getting along. And of course, too much conflict you know, produces you know, anarchy in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. The immediate dissolution of Rome did not produce transformative economic change. It first produced centuries of poverty and brutal violence that went almost nowhere. Uh, and it wasn't for a thousand years that the co competition among the states, the polycentric competition, actually allowed the economy to reach the same level, let alone to start developing beyond that point. So even if you have one of these conflicts, there's no telling you know, whether you're going to be able to have it be this temporary thing. You know, if you think about the world wars, the world wars are incredibly temporary, very severe periods of conflict, right? So you have very, very concentrated conflict for 
four or five years, and then it ends. And so then you can do this reconstruction, you can uh, you know, take all the military technology you developed and you can implement it to facilitate the reconstruction. The stuff that you've destroyed in many ways makes room for new things that you may want to build with the new technology. You know, it, it has a, a function to it. But if you fight for 100 years or 200 years instead of for five years, like you do at the end of the Roman Empire, you can't have economic growth while that level of destruction is occurring. Uh, that's way too much for way too long. So it's not until you get to a point where these wars are more defined and short and uh, interregnums. Yeah. And with the polycentric competition, you eventually get to a point where you have these states that are large enough and centralized enough that they can fight wars as exceptions to their rule of, of generally having a modus vivendi with one another. Uh, but for that to happen, you first have to go through the cataclysm of tearing apart the Roman Empire. Then you have to go through a thousand years of everybody being you know, you know, constantly thrown into struggle. And only after you know, civil conflicts among the elites within the societies can you get the kinds of states that are necessary for the kind of competition that ultimately produce the, the transformative economic growth. It's, you know, it's very difficult to plan this. And so we sit here and we're like, oh, we're technocrats and we can do policy and we can come up with policies that will unlock growth and we'll raise the growth rate. I mean, come on. Yeah. What this really suggests is the biggest growth that you can get is from an uncontrolled process that you don't manage particularly well, if at all. You know, if you really want to see the society become something totally different, you have to almost take your hands off it. Uh, and, you know, like, like, uh, people do when they're they're driving at very very high speeds and they take their hands off the wheel close their eyes and and say jesus take the wheel <laughs> there's an aspect to this you know when we really have the transformative industrialization it's not because smart people stand around and go here's how we're going to do it let's plan it it's like uh, zizek it's like an event or, or but it's also not, you know, it's not markets. You know, the markets are themselves a planned way of trying to make this happen. Markets are not unplanned. They are, they are themselves a planned thing. You know, Rome creates a market by subsidizing the Anonis system. Rome creates a market by policing the Mediterranean. You know, the night watchman state constructs a market through watching and acting. Uh, you know, and it does this for a purpose, to facilitate a, a system of property transfers. Uh, yeah, there's always you know, any attempt to construct anything, you know, even a market system involves centralized planning. But it's it's the moments when the planning completely breaks down that the really new stuff happens. And it's something that can't be accounted for by any anybody, any political theory you cannot lay out. Is it is it common? Exactly under what conditions something like that, you know, can happen in such a way that you can control it. Do, do most political theorists try and, or historians just say, there are chunks of history and between each one, it's almost like, I don't know. There's no logic to it. Is that the consensus? Uh, you can try to periodize Period, stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, you know, but I, yeah, I think part of what makes History as a discipline interesting is that it just defeats efforts to try to make sense of it. Is that social science? And that's the, the perspective of the historian. The historian does not approach it like social science generally. The historian will go, you know, it really defeats your attempts to make it fit into a, a neat narrative. Uh, 
you know, you just need these exogenous things to happen. You know, if you really look at what made it possible, it was both exogenous events and terrible events play pivotal roles in making new things possible. Death is very important for growth in history. Uh, death of states, death of, of human beings, death of, of possibilities, potentialities. You know, when you take whole classes of people and you subordinate them and you uh, compel them to be slaves or serfs or uh, wage workers or whatever it might be, you, know, you strip from those people the possibility of fully actualizing themselves as human beings so that you can make a society where it's possible for some number of people to fully actualize themselves as human beings. But to do that, you have to mutilate some large portion of your population to create space for the part that you've decided to protect. You know, the ancient society involves you know, having a large number of people produce the surplus for a smaller number of people. Uh, it involves this mutilation of of whole classes. Because you prefer, I mean, Seidel compared it to Adam Smith, this idea of just focus on what's existing. And then even though it's not really gaining in productivity, you're still not being greedy when you're taking rents from people or just keeping them in lower classes. So it's kind of a good bargain. It, it just gets rationalized uh, because you know there is no other way of doing it that has been competitive. You know, people start talking about anarchism, and the issue with with you know the anarchist projects is that no anarchist project survives contact with the state. You know, as soon as you run into a state, the state bulldozes right over whatever it is, uh, whatever anarchist project. And that's you know when people talk about indigenous tribes that do things differently, well, they're able to do it insofar as they're able to do it because they. Are in remote places where they don't have much contact with states, or where they're uh, not really in a situation where the state is all that interested in bothering them. But you know, as soon as Brazil gets to a point where Brazil wants you know the the land that the indigenous people are on, it takes it from them, just as states have done for hundreds of years. They just take land from non-state actors, uh, you know, when they need to, uh, when they feel they need to. That is the, the, the way it goes. So when people talk about anarchist social formations, you know, the question is always, how do you compete with the state? Because competition to a very large degree is what drives uh, what can exist in politics. We're constantly hearing about, you know, you can't do this policy, you can't do that policy because it's a competitive global economy. You know, what about trade? Um, you, know, we, you can't do this, you can't do that because you won't survive contact with the, the army, with the military of a state. You know, if you have a state that is not organized on an industrial basis, if you have a state that cannot command a large number of troops on short notice, that lacks the centralized structure to raise enough revenue to raise a large enough army. You know, if, you can't, if you can't do these things, your form of society cannot subsist in a world where there are some states that are doing them. Uh, and you can't just make a moral argument that we should all desist because it won't, even if you can get 90% of people to listen, there will still be the 10. And if the 10 don't listen, well, those states remain more competitive and able to beat other kinds of social formations. So it, it's this, we're just, we human beings, we, we don't make wonderful systems. The things that allow our systems to function are often really, really horrible. And there's no straightforward or easy moral moralizing way out of it to just go, well, we should just be better. We should just get good. We should just do something else. There are reasons that the world has become this way. 
there's a certain not quite rightness about it. Same and different. You just need, uh, yeah. it, oh, I don't know, duality. It's like, it's just unfair. <laughs> you need to have one for the other. I don't know. Anyway, we're over an hour, so I don't want to go on too much longer. But I, I do want to say, you know, part of the trouble with looking at the Roman economy is that we don't have a lot of data. And we may never get the data. And so what people do is, is you, you can have the attitude of use the data you've got. But because there isn't a ton of data, there's always room for interpretation. And this is generally true of a lot of different historical periods. I mean, even if you look at now, if you were to ask people now, you know, why is there, you know, this this whole crisis of liberal democracy? You know, what, what what's going on with Donald Trump? You know, why is Donald Trump a thing? And why are there people who, you know, did a January 6th? And you ask questions like this. You will get very different answers from different people about why all these things are going on. Very different interpretations. You'll find some people who you know, think that our society is basically functional, but that you know, on the internet, you know, bad and stupid messages get spread around and that those cause people to become delusional and disconnected from reality. <laughs> You'll find other people who think there are major problems with the way the society is structured, that these produce forms of resentment and forms of politics that are uh, that, that cause chaos and and uh, disorder, and that you have to deal with these underlying structural problems before you'll be able to deal with those effects. Those are two whole different ways of looking at it. Uh, I, and you'll find both of them. And this is in a modern society where we have access to enormous amounts of information and data. And yet we debate all the time what the fundamental character of our society is, uh, you know, whether our society is this horribly exploitative thing, or whether it's you know something benign. Uh, of course, the truth is that the benign is only benign through exploitation and uh, the exploitation is only chosen insofar as people think that it produces something benign. Uh, but yeah, yeah, these become different kind of lenses through which we can view the same fundamental process. But uh, you know, for that reason, history is always being appropriated and being used, even good history that is based on very thorough readings of the available data, of the available sources. And I think all three of these books are by scholars who have tried very hard to look at data and look at, uh, you know, read texts and pay attention. They're all very learned people who know a lot about the Roman world and the classical era. And yet, you know, you'll find a lot of people out there who will just pick up one of these books, read it, decide that's the way it was and ignore everything to the contrary. There's a bunch of people on the, on YouTube who think that Rome was just doomed by hyperinflation, you know, who have who don't look at any of these books, who have just kind of picked out that narrative because they want to say that if we don't you know, always prioritize controlling inflation in our own society, that we'll go the same way. That's really the only reason they say it. It's not because they have any reason to believe it. They want to believe it because they want to say something about our society. And even with very learned historians and classicists and, and, and so on, there's always a tendency to want to draw the lesson you want to draw and to want to read the evidence in a way that lets you draw the lesson you want to draw. And this is a reason to always be not quite sure about things and to always kind of, of uh, not grasp, not, not grasp on too hard to specific ideas or specific notions 
of the way it was or the way it, it is or will be. Kind of a major theme of this show really at this point is, is just you know, constantly shifting perspectives and not sticking too rigidly to any one particular frame uh, and constantly throwing ourselves into other stuff that is different. And so this week we threw ourselves into Roman economy and this is what we came out of it with. We'll see what Alex picks out for next time. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.